This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over Tel Aviv. It is just over 11, just after 11 p.m. here. It has been 17 days since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas caught this country, and frankly, most of the world by surprise, setting off a cascade of responses and consequences that now includes a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Tonight, we're hearing for the very first time from one of the hostages kidnapped and just released by Hamas about what she endured. Hamas held 85-year-old Yochi Lifshitz captive for more than two weeks. It's an experience she described as going through hell, speaking in Hebrew at a hospital here in Tel Aviv earlier today. She describes how Hamas beat her as they forced her into Gaza. It was a painful act. They brought us into a hatch of a tunnel. On the way, I was lying on the side on the motorbike, legs to one side, body to the other. The Shabab were hitting me, so they didn't break my ribs, but it was very painful and made it difficult for me to breathe. Smaller groups and kept under close watch. Her husband and the husband of the other hostage Hamas released yesterday, Nurit Cooper, are still believed to be in Hamas custody with more than 200 others. Today, multiple sources tell CNN that talks are underway between the U.S., Israel, Qatar, and Egypt to try to secure the release of a large number of the remaining hostages Israel has so far held off on a ground incursion into Gaza while those talks appear to be playing out. But that does not mean that Israel's missiles have stopped flying. Earlier today, Israel said it hit more than 400 Hamas targets in Gaza over just the last day. And Hamas continues to fire on Israel. Earlier today, we saw the Iron Dome intercept some of those missiles over Tel Aviv, right over my head. It's a reminder that Hamas has not stopped trying to reduce Israeli civilian population centers to rubble. In fact, Hamas has fired about 7,000 missiles at Israel, according to the IDF, on and since October 7th. Now, the Iron Dome defense system stops most of those Hamas rockets, but, but not all of them. The IDF has, has since, of course, returned fire. Israel is without question tragically killing innocent Palestinians, as it says it is targeting Hamas. But, but the fact that Tel Aviv does not look like Gaza isn't for lack of trying by Hamas. And the fact that Israel's civilian death toll is not far higher, again, not for a lack of trying by Hamas. The difference is the Iron Dome. The IDF is right now prepared for a grand ground incursion. The air campaign has limitations because Hamas operates inside a vast array of tunnels beneath Gaza. It's a sophisticated underground lair that one of the just released hostages described as a spider's web of tunnels. I want to bring in CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's live in Cairo, Egypt. Clarissa, let's start with these hostage negotiations. Has Israel said how long it will delay its ground invasion to try and get more hostages released. 
So, Jake, they haven't said anything in terms of a specific timeline. They're obviously coming under a lot of pressure, especially as all these different parties are trying to negotiate the release of a larger group of hostages. We've seen four released so far. The hope is to get dozens out potentially. But sources are telling CNN that they don't think the Israelis will be willing to hold back for more than a few days, potentially. There are many different issues at play here, of course, but one of the big ones is this issue of fuel. Hamas is saying, if we're gonna release these hostages or before we release these hostages, you need to start to allow fuel to come into the Gaza Strip. The IDF is saying, we're not going to allow uh, fuel to come into the uh, to come into the Gaza Strip because we believe it's going to be used by Hamas for their military infrastructure. That is just one of the pieces of the puzzle. But you can imagine when you take into account how many different parties are involved, how many different sort of pieces there are to the puzzle, just how intricate and delicate and tenuous, frankly, these negotiations are, Jake. And Clarissa, today one of the United Nations groups announced it will have to stop all of its operations in Gaza tomorrow if no fuel is delivered. Are fuel deliveries part of the ongoing discussions when it comes to aid? So they're at the center. I mean, it's it's fuel has become the issue of the moment, whether you're talking about hostage negotiations, whether you're talking about humanitarian corridors, everyone is talking about fuel. And you're right, the United Nations uh, Relief and Works Agency, it's a Palestinian refugee agency, or the agency that deals with Palestinian refugees, I should say, is saying that by tomorrow night, it's over. They will not be able to continue uh, their operations. In addition to that, Jake, multiple hospitals now saying that they are going to be forced to shut down. According to the World Health Organization, six hospitals have already been forced to shut down because they don't have fuel to power the generators that they need to keep their operations moving. Another two hospitals have been forced to partially shut down or shut down parts of their hospitals because of the desperation for the need for fuel. Now, earlier on today, we heard the head of the IDF come out and he said that they were working on a mechanism to try to get fuel to those hospitals and to ensure or into Gaza Strip as part of this humanitarian aid, but to ensure that Hamas never got their hands on it. Then literally just a few hours later, a spokesperson for the IDF came out and said, no fuel, it's not happening and we can't allow it to happen because Hamas will take it uh, and use it for military operations. So you have a complete impasse here and everyone warning, really issuing a siren at this stage, Jake, that this could have disastrous consequences if there's not movement on it by tomorrow. All right, Clarissa Ward in Cairo, thank you so much, really appreciate it. Music festival goers in southern Israel, of course, ran for their lives on October 7th as Hamas terrorists hunted them down. Uh, innocent people were kidnapped. They were shot at point-blank range. Uh, a celebration of unity and love. Guests from all over the world turned into a frenzied massacre. An Israeli rescue service found more than 260 corpses. 24-year-old Eden Yerushalmi was at the festival. Eden's family was on the phone with her until the call went silent. Her family says there are tapes of Eden in that moment 
whispering that she had been caught by the terrorists of Hamas. As gunshots rang out in the background, Eden's family has not heard from her since, and she was not found. Joining us now is Eden's uncle, Guy Itzhaki. And Guy, I'm so sorry that you and your family are going through this. Obviously, Eden did not deserve this. Your family does not deserve this. What goes through your mind when you, when you, when you hear the tapes? So this is really terrifying. Since then, family is really devastated. Can you imagine father and mother that her young girl is kidnapped and no. held by Hamas in Gaza? This is the worst nightmare that you can imagine. How old is she? She, she was 24 last week. So she turned 24 in captivity. Exactly. Uh, God knows where. In, in a tunnel in Gaza last week. Yeah, I mean, I guess the best that you could hope for is that she was kidnapped. Y- yes. What do you want people to know uh, about her? What, what's she like? Yeah, so, so Eden, as, as we said, uh, she's 24 years old. She's, she enjoys life. She uh, always laughs. She uh, loves parties. Every party that was, she was there. Uh, Eden uh, goes on trips a lot. She had a trip to Greece on Sunday, a day after the party, and this is after a long trip she had in Mexico a few months ago. Uh, Eden uh, planned to become a, a, a trainer in order to train people. So this is our Eden. Like a physical trainer? Uh, like a Pilates trainer. Like a Pilates yes, trainer. Yes, she, okay. she started this and uh, she was planned to complete her, her uh, um, uh, learning very soon. One of, the, one of the cruelest things about this, and, and look, nobody deserves what happened, but one of the cruelest things about this is Hamas killed and kidnapped some of the people in this country who are the most in favor of Palestinian rights who are the most active when it comes to the peace movement, who, who, who employ Palestinians, who want a two-state solution, who don't support the Netanyahu government, who, I mean, it, some of the kibbutzim are, are, are people who moved here and have been the most active in, in keeping a watch on, on some of the injustices for Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, this attack doesn't support the Palestinian goal at all. On the contrary, I mean, right now... You will, you, will, you will find it very hard to, to find any supporter in Israel that will support to give up lands in favor of peace. Because, uh, you know, after these traumatic events, uh, it will be very hard to find someone that will, that will support this approach. If you could look at the camera or look at your camera right here yeah. and talk to those people who took Eden, the, the, the people from Hamas who took Eden. And look, they're releasing hostages. They have been released. They've released four. Yeah. What, what would you say to them? Yeah, so Hamas claims that they are not a terror organization, but they are a military organization. So behave like one. If this is the case, military organizations do not kidnap kids, elderly and young girls. Please release Eden, release all the hostages, all the civilians. They are not involved. This is not how a military organization behave, behaves. How do you feel about how the Israeli government has responded so far? I've heard a lot of criticism of how the intelligence agencies, how the Shin Bet were not prepared, they, they, and how the IDF took hours and hours to respond. 
Um, we can put that aside for, for a second. I'm sure you have your thoughts. They're pretty obvious. But since then, how do you feel how the Israeli government has responded? The truth is I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I give credit to the government. I don't know why, but I give them credit. I give credit to the IDF that they will do whatever is needed to rescue, to bring back home all the hostages, the civilians and the soldiers. And the truth is, I'm optimistic. I'm to, uh, because at the end of the day, we're talking about more than 200 civilians uh, over there. And uh, I'm optimistic that they will, they will come back home. The question is when? And now we are 17, 80 days after, it is tough. And if it will take weeks, probably it will. It will be very hard for the families, you know, mothers, fathers of, of their kids, husband, that his entire family is in Gaza. It will be very hard to, to sustain in such a radical, you know, situation. This is not a normal situation. Yeah. Well, I, I hope and pray that Eden is back with your family. She, she has a beautiful spirit. Thank I you. hope she's teaching Pilates soon. Yeah. Thank thanks. you so much. Thank, Thank you for joining much. us. Really appreciate it. Guy Itzhaki, appreciate it. Coming up, what CNN is learning about the, the technology that Hamas used for the better part of two years to plan its brutal October 7th terrorist attacks. But first, the tough task right now to monitor suspected cases of human rights abuses in Gaza and beyond, human rights abuses by the Israeli government. We're, we're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, live in Tel Aviv at the United Nations in New York City today. U.S. Secrets, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken urged the U.N. Security Council to use its leverage to stop this war between Israel and Hamas from spreading. The only way to break out of this horrific cycle of violence is through two states for two peoples. Help us build that solution. Help us prevent the spread of war that will make two states and broader peace and security in the region even harder to achieve. Let's bring in CNN's Alex Marquardt. Alex, what else did Secretary Blinken have to say at the U.N. today? Well, in the context of the world pressuring uh, countries to not uh, expand this war, he also said that they need to pressure Iran and its proxies to stop these attacks. He noted uh, the growing number of attacks uh, against U.S. targets, and he said that they are uh, opening, they're threatening to open another front and said that the U.S. will defend our security swiftly and decisively. Uh, Jake, of course, we have seen a string of attacks by Iranian proxies against U.S. targets. Um, there's also an interesting part where when talking about humanitarian aid for Gaza and the desperate need for that aid to get into Gaza, uh, Secretary Blinken talked about the need for humanitarian pauses that must be considered. Now, the U.S. has stayed far away from using the word ceasefire. Uh, Israel has said that there will be no ceasefire. But here you have Secretary Blinken saying that these humanitarian pauses must be considered. And Jake, I'm not really clear on what the difference is there. And then we also heard from the uh, U.N. Secretary General, uh, who said something that infuriated the Israeli ambassador. Take a listen to the Secretary General. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. 
So that part, Jake, 56 years of suffocating occupation uh, led the Israeli ambassador at the United Nations to tweet out this furious reply, saying it's truly sad that the head of an organization that arose out of the Holocaust holds such horrible views. The ambassador then calling for the secretary general to resign. Jake. Well, I mean, it seems to be a justification for what happened on October 7th. I mean, that, that seems to be what, what the Secretary General is suggesting there. I, I mean, that, I can understand why he would be upset. Uh, there, were, there were also family members of, of hostages taken by Hamas outside the U.N. today. Yeah, th- that's exactly, by the way, that's how the ambassador took it. And, and certainly that's how some of these families took it as well. Uh, some of them were supposed to meet with the Secretary General uh, and then refused. But we did hear from uh, a number of understandably very distraught family members. Uh, a woman named Mohana Loni, she said that, that her two sisters, three nieces and two brothers-in-law were all kidnapped by Hamas. She said that they needed to be back yesterday not tomorrow, yesterday. And then we heard from a mother of a son who was kidnapped saying that nothing seems to be moving on the front to release them, that this is a world crisis, not just a personal crisis. So these families calling on the world uh, to help pressure Hamas uh, to release their loved ones. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. There is a nonprofit organization here in Israel, an NGO called B'Tselem, that monitors alleged human rights abuses by the Israeli government against Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. So we were wondering, how has the horrific Hamas attack on October 7th on the Israeli people and the response by the Israeli military on Gaza, how has that shaken up the mission of B'Tselem? Peace activist Vivian Silver lived on Kibbutz Be'eri and was a former board member of B'Tselem, a progressive group that monitors the Israeli government's treatment of Palestinians. Its name B'Tselem means in the image. It's from a Bible verse. It means in the image of God. All of us, all of humankind are in the image of God. On October 7th, Vivian Silver disappeared. She's thought to have been kidnapped by Hamas. Today I spoke with B'Tselem's Roy Yellen. Part uh, of like the, the shock and horror that we all experience is the fact that a lot of our supporters, um, immediate circles, even family members, uh, were killed, kidnapped, or affected in other ways in, in, the, in what happened on Saturday. B'Tselem is an organization that works very, very hard to advocate for Palestinians, for human rights, to provide overwatch of the Israeli government, to criticize the Israeli government. Does what happened on October 7th make your job tougher? Certainly. Uh, first of all, I think like we're still like in the process of uh, understanding what happened because it's, a, it's something that on the strategic level, um, the cha- there is a change in the balance of power. In addition to that, because extremism and fundamentalism feeds extremism and fundamentalism on the other side, uh, we're also going to have a much tougher job of getting to the hearts and minds of people in Israel and around the world. So what do you say to somebody, an Israeli who comes to you and says, this proves there cannot be any peace with Hamas. This proves they just want to wipe out Israel. They want to kill Jews. There can be no peace with Hamas. Maybe there can be peace with the Palestinian people, but not with Hamas running uh, Gaza. Not all Palestinians are Hamas, but also not all Israelis are Bibi Netanyahu. 
not all Israelis are Itamar Ben-Gvir and the other right-wing extremists that we have in our governments now. Uh, and changes are possible. I have to believe that in order to stay here. Um, and I do believe that the only option is to find a way to live with Palestinians as equal. That I do believe that only if we provide people on the other side with full, complete human rights, future, equality, democratic norms, only like that we can live together. You're still an optimist because, you know, I've heard Israelis say the reason that the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank hasn't had an election in whatever it's been, 17 years, I don't even know the number, the reason they haven't had an election is because if they had an election today, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, would be replaced by Hamas, that Hamas actually represents what the Palestinian people want. Uh -huh. And yet you are optimistic uh, about a peace deal still being possible. You have to be optimistic because we are not going to drive millions of Palestinians away from here. They are going to be here forever. And I believe they're not going to have the power to drive us away from here. So we need to find a way which, to build a better future for all of us. And that can be done only by, um, you know, not, not exchanging rockets, but exchanging words. And you are monitoring what's going on in Gaza right now. What is your group seeing in Gaza right now? Two of my colleagues, uh, field researchers in Gaza, lost family members. One of them is now living in a sort of makeshift refugee camp in, in a tent. The civilians are paying the price, and that's not, never, never a good, good thing. I don't think that we're kind of creating a different, uh, different narrative in which Hamas is the... Um, is, is culpable and, and, and responsible for what is going on. I think we're breeding more hatred and anger towards Israel. But what about the argument from IDF that Hamas embeds itself within the populace? The IDF, Israel, has a right to defend itself against terrorist attacks. And if Hamas hides among the Palestinian people, this is Hamas's fault. What do, you, what do you make of that argument? The person who shoots civilians is the person who's responsible for shooting civilians. And they should do better. And we should be better than Hamas. And saying, like, they started it and they are doing it and it's their responsibility. No, it's our responsibility to be better than them. Roy Allen says he feels a degree of privilege every day because he's still able to call his Palestinian colleagues in Gaza. They're still able to work together. They're still able to see the humanity in each other. And that keeps him grounded and he appreciates that. That's something that he's able to do every day. And he's happy for that. That brings him a sense of peace. We'll be right back after this quick break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. New scenes of carnage and destruction emerge from Gaza today as the latest round of Israeli airstrikes killed 704, at least according to the Hamas-controlled Palestinian Ministry of Health. A small uh, amount of aid got through to southern Gaza, but it did not include fuel, we're told. Moments ago, the World Health Organization announced that six hospitals in Gaza have been forced to close due to a lack of fuel. This is a high-profile voice in the Middle East is now speaking out uh, because of the dire situation in Gaza. The Queen of Jordan spoke exclusively with CNN's Christiana Mampour. Uh, she called out the Western world for condemning Hamas, uh, but not criticizing Israel's airstrikes in Gaza. I just want to remind the world that Palestinian mothers love their children just as much as any other mother in the world. And for them to have to go through this is just unbelievable. And equally, I think the people all around uh, the Middle East, including in Jordan, we are just shocked and disappointed by the world's reaction to this catastrophe that is unfolding. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen, you know, a glaring double standard uh, in the world. When October 7th happened, the world immediately and unequivocally uh, stood by Israel and uh, its right to defend itself and condemned uh, the attacks that happened. But when we, what we're seeing the last couple of weeks, we have, we're seeing silence in the world. Um, you know, the countries have stopped at just expressing concern or acknowledging the casualties, but always with a preface of declaration of support uh, for Israel. And, you know, are we being told that it is wrong to kill a, a family, an entire family at gunpoint, but it's okay to shell them to death? I mean, there is a glaring double standard here, and it is just shocking to the Arab world. This is the first time in modern history that there is such human suffering, and the world is not even calling for a ceasefire. So the silence is deafening, and to many in our region, it makes the Western world complicit, you know, um, through their support and through the cover that they give Israel, that it is just it's right to defend itself. Many in the Arab world are looking at the Western world as not just tolerating this, but as aiding and abetting it. And this is just horrendous and, and it's deeply, deeply disappointing to all of us. Ah, yes, that uh, bulwark of human rights, uh, Jordan. CNN national security analyst and former deputy for the director of national intelligence, Beth Sanner, uh, joins us now. Um, Beth, uh, help us put into context uh, not only her blunt words, but but the emotions that Queen Rania expressed in describing this as a double, double standard. I mean, we did hear quite a lot of protests uh, in the Arab world and uh, the Arab street uh, about what Israel is doing. But she's talking about the Western world. 
Right. Well, I mean, Queen Rania is a really powerful and authentic voice for the Palestinians, for moms. Um, I think all of us watch the TV and and are heartbroken. Uh, But she also represents very much the Palestinian perspective. She is Palestinian. She was born to Palestinian parents. And, you know, in Jordan, there's no real concrete census, but people say over half of the population there is Palestinian. And I think that this view of the double standard is something that's been in the Arab world for a long time. I mean, you know, a poll done last year, three quarters of the Arab population polled uh, already thought that the U.S. had a bad policy toward the Palestinian, that it wasn't fair. And, you know, and a majority of them also felt that U.S. policies toward the region were destabilizing. And so, you know, we're, we, we talked about this, I think, last week about, you know, when, when you're pushing on this open door, you already are starting at a very low base with trust of the United States. And then you add on top of this, really the suffering that is going on with the Palestinians. And um, these are are very real things. And I think that, uh, you know, we would be mistaken if we don't actually listen to that and understand what is going on, Um, whether we disagree or not. uh, We have to listen to that for U.S. policy's sake. A hundred percent. And the scenes of devastation and civilian deaths in Gaza are, are absolutely heartbreaking. But you and I have discussed this before, the plight of the Palestinians, and certainly there is a lot of blame to go around when it comes to the policies of the Israeli government um, and the policies uh, and the leadership of the Palestinians. Um, but where, where is King Abdullah been? I mean, Hamas was elected in 2006. Did I, did I miss uh, some grand effort by King Abdullah to help the people of Gaza get democracy and human rights? Not that Jordan is any great example of democracy and human rights itself. Well, I mean, the Jordanians, I mean, we have to be fair here. The Jordanians have tried to play a very stable role in, you know, they're the ones that administer uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, the Temple Mount, and um, and they have tried to play more of a stabilizing role. But I think that, you know, I, I mean, I certainly am not going to defend Arab leaders and them having a positive, helpful role in the region. But you can say the same thing for, not the same thing, but, you know, we haven't actually helped that much on the two-state solution in the past, you know, decade. And part of that also is because no, the Israeli. The Israelis don't actually want it. I mean, the polling shows in the Israelis, like only about a third of them actually think that a two-state solution is possible. And that's way, way down than it was, you know, when majority thought two decades ago and about half, you know, a decade ago. So, yeah, so it's not it's not a great scene. No, Netanyahu wanted to divide the Palestinian people uh, between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority because that would help destroy uh, any sort of hope for a Palestinian two-state solution. Absolutely. There's a lot of blame to go around. I'm just saying Jordan also uh, gets their share. Beth Sanner, thanks so much. Appreciate you. More here from Israel in a moment. Uh, but first, first uh, to breaking news on Capitol Hill in the United States where just as quickly as a nominee for speaker appeared, 
the bid seemed to be quickly collapsing. I'm covering life and death issues, serious tragedies, serious momentous occurrences here in Israel and, of course, in Gaza. And, of course, we have to interrupt this for one moment to cover the complete and utter clown car at the end, that is the House Republican speaker's race back in Washington, D.C. This morning, the House Republican conference selected someone, a rational human being, Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer, to be its new nominee for Speaker of the House. However, moments ago, a source tells CNN, Emmer was forced to drop out of the race. Let's get to CNN's Manu Raju, who's live for us on Capitol Hill. Uh, Manu, was Congressman Emmer too sane? What, ha- what happened? He's the third Republican nominee to have seen his candidacy collapse amid a revolt in the ranks. The third since in the last three weeks, Jake, in the aftermath of Kevin McCarthy's ouster as Speaker. Three weeks to the day. Republicans have not been able to coalesce behind a single candidate among sharp divisions in this unprecedented moment. The House cannot act on any issue of national and international significance, including aid to Israel, until they resolve this this crisis within their own ranks and this bitter infighting that continues to persist. Tom Emmer took a number of votes that did not sit well with members of his hard right on issues like spending and issues like raising the debt limit, on codifying same-sex marriage, on not on voting to actually certify the 2020 election and not overturn the 2020 election, all of which prompted some concern on the right, more than he can afford to lose in terms of votes. Moments ago, he made clear he was dropping out of this race, despite being nominated about three and a half hours ago, indicating that he had no path going forward. And also a huge problem for him, Donald Trump came out in opposition to him, calling him a rhino, calling on his supporters in the House GOPO conference to sink his bid. I asked Kevin McCarthy, about that, about Donald Trump's impact, and he indicated that was a big problem for Emmer's bid. How, pro- how problematic was it for Donald Trump to come out and call Tom Emmer a rhino? I think it makes a difference in this race here. Uh, I mean, we, he had a number of votes that behind, I think that made more so. Yeah. Is there any path for the speakership or should he stop? So the question now is, what is next, Jake? And really, Republicans are at a loss. They're trying to see if there's any candidate who can get the 217 votes he or she would need to be elected Speaker of the House. At the moment, nobody can get there. So who can govern this almost ungovernable House Republican conference? It is uncertain at this moment. So Republicans plan to meet right now behind closed doors to figure out what is next as this infighting leaves this chamber completely paralyzed at this critical time for the United States. Jake. Just completely embarrassing. Just utterly embarrassing. Manu on Capitol Hill, thank you so much. Uh, we'll have more from Israel ahead, but next, uh, another day, another flip. We're going to dig into the significance of today's tearful guilty plea from former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, live in Tel Aviv, and we will have more coverage of the war in just moments. But we're going to turn to a major legal development in the U.S. today for former President Donald Trump. For the third time in a week, 
And for the fourth time overall, a former Trump ally has flipped against him in the Georgia election subversion case. Just this morning, former Trump attorney Jenna Ellis pleaded guilty to a count of aiding and abetting false statements. This follows guilty pleas from Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell, pro-Trump attorney Kenneth Chesbro, and Georgia bail bondsman Scott Hall. Jenna Ellis earlier today delivered a tearful statement in court in which she threw Trump under the bus for her actions. I endeavored to represent to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. Mm, Ellis, in her emotional comments, attempting to make it seem as if she was just a, a pawn in mastermind Trump's scheme to overthrow the 2020 election results. Remember, she was one of the main voices after the 2020 election, pushing Trump's very obviously false election lies. President Trump is right that there was widespread fraud. The election was stolen and President Trump won by a landslide. We have this overwhelming evidence of fraud. This election was fraudulent. It was corrupted. All of these uh, false and fraudulent results. With me now is CNN's Jamie Gengel. And, and, and Jamie, it's really kind of tough to listen to this. Jenna Ellis is now saying she was merely relying on other attorneys to give her advice. But she was a grown woman. And these election lies were very obvious. And we were stating this as fact at the time on the air. These election lies were obvious to anyone with a functioning brainstem. What do you make of this? Look, Jake, this may be her defense now, but let's remember she did just plead guilty to a felony. And the bottom line of all of this is this is a bad day for Donald Trump, as you said Uh, she was in the room. She is a firsthand witness. This is someone who had direct links to Donald Trump. We don't know yet exactly what testimony she's given the prosecutors, what evidence, communication, emails, uh, texts she may have, but she was in the room. So even though you may not, um, you may think this is a day late for her to be contrite, she did plead guilty. So she's the fourth to flip in the Georgia case. How does this, how does that change the case for Donald Trump? So I think that every time someone flips, uh, the prosecutors, you had that chart up there going, going down the road, the walls are closing in for Donald Trump, not just Donald Trump. Uh, Someone like Jenna Ellis, as an example, was very close to Rudy Giuliani. She knows a lot and can say a lot about his case. And I think it also has an impact on some other big names, John Eastman, Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark. So, you know, one by one, these sort of more minor people, even though she was right in the middle of it, are now not only available, they have said they will testify against the others, Jake. All right, Jamie Gengale, thanks so much. Coming up next here from Israel, what CNN is learning about how the terrorist group Hamas used specific technology to plan its October 7th attacks.
Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over Tel Aviv. It is almost midnight here, and it has been 17 days since the horrific terrorist attacks by Hamas caught this country and, frankly, much of the world by surprise, setting off a cascade of responses and consequences that now includes a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Part of that humanitarian crisis, the lack of basic necessities, food, water, fuel. Moments ago, a spokesman for Israel's military says no fuel will be allowed to enter the Gaza Strip because of concerns it will be stolen by Hamas, which controls the Gaza Strip. And that lack of fuel is already having serious consequences. The World Health Organization says six hospitals have shut down due to a lack of power. The Israeli military spokesman was responding to a question about whether Israel would consider allowing fuel deliveries in exchange for hostages. Out of approximately 222 people kidnapped by Hamas that day, only four have been released. And tonight, one of those four is accusing the Israel Defense Forces and Israeli Intelligence Service of failing, failing at their jobs. The lack of awareness by IDF and Shin Bet did great damage to us. We were the scapegoat. They warned us three weeks beforehand. Hordes of people came into the road and burnt our fields. They sent fire balloons and the IDF did not treat it seriously. That, of course, is 85-year-old Yochi Lifshitz. She was held captive for more than two weeks before being released last night, courageously telling the world what she endured after being kidnapped from her home in Israel. She says her captors, the terrorists of Hamas, uh, threw her onto a motorbike. They beat her with sticks. They stole her jewelry. And this is just one person's story. At least 218 others, including Lifshitz's husband, are still being held hostage right now. Intensive talks are underway to secure the release of a large number of them. The desire to get them out, a major reason the U.S., continues to press Israel to further delay any ground operation into Gaza. This CNN is learning exactly how Hamas was able to pull off its deadly surprise attack without tipping its hand. Let's start with CNN's chief global affairs correspondent, Matthew Chance. A warning to our viewers, his report will contain some graphic images. Matthew, sources tell CNN intense talks are underway right now to free a large number of hostages. What is Hamas asking in return? Well, I mean, first of all, they're not they're not spelling out exactly what their terms are. But our understanding is from U.S. and Israeli sources as well, is that the main demand of Hamas is they want fuel. They want fuel in exchange uh, for lives, fuel to, um, in the words of Israeli officials, to potentially uh, fuel rockets that could be fired at Israel, fuel also to power the underground network of tunnels that Hamas has for lighting, of course, but also for oxygen 
supplies there as well. Officially, the Palestinian Health Ministry says it wants it to you know, kind of fuel the hospitals uh, as well. as lots of people in dire need of medical care, of course, uh, in the Gaza Strip. Although the, the IDF, the Israeli military, has, has basically said that's not, that's not real. You know, they already have supplies of fuel um, to do that. Anyway, um, if that barrier cannot be broken, it's unlikely at this stage, it seems, there's going to be more of the hostage releases that we have seen. And already, as you said, we've seen over the past few days, several um, hostages be released by Hamas uh, into Israel. One of them earlier today, um, a very old lady, 85 years old, gave her stunning account of how she was captured and what she went through. And just a, a quick warning, you know, it is Hamas video at the start of this piece. And so it's not clear what propaganda purpose they may have been thinking of when they allowed this to be filmed. This is the extraordinary moment. An 85-year-old Israeli grandmother was released by Hamas. It's okay, let's go. In video recorded by the militant group, you can see her shaking the hand of a masked gunman. Shalom, or peace, she says, as she's led away. Back in Israel, Yeshevid Lifshitz is speaking about her hostage ordeal. I went through hell. They went on rampage in our kibbutz, kidnapped me, lay me over a motorcycle on the side and flew with me through the plowed fields. They stormed our houses, beat people, some of them, like me, kidnapped. They didn't distinguish between old and young. The Hamas attack on her kibbutz of near Oz in southern Israel earlier this month left a quarter of its residents killed or kidnapped, including many children, according to Israeli officials. Yeheved described how she was forcibly driven away with her elderly husband and hit with sticks on the journey into Gaza. Her daughter, who helped translate her mother's ordeal to reporters, described a warren of passages underneath Gaza, where her mother and several other Israeli hostages were held. There are a huge, um, huge um, network of tunnels underneath. It looks like a spider web. The October 7th attacks, many of them recorded by Hamas gunmen themselves as they rampaged through Israeli communities, took an unprecedented toll, leaving at least 1,400 Israelis dead and more than 200, like Yehevid, kidnapped and taken to Gaza. The lack of knowledge in the army in Shin Bet harmed us very much. We were warned three weeks ahead of it. They showed us masses reaching the road. They sent fire balloons to burn our fields. And the army somehow didn't take it seriously. A catastrophic lapse in security that left so many Israelis exposed. Well, Jake, that criticism that we heard there of the failure of the Israeli intelligence services is something we've heard from many Israelis we've spoken to. But I think the more urgent issue right now is what is Israel going to do next? Is it going to continue to delay this military action, this ground invasion uh, into the Gaza Strip to allow for this process of hostage releasing to yield more results? Israel says that there will be no ceasefire and it will keep up its military pressure on Hamas. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. Appreciate it. One big question since October 7th is, is how? How did Hamas carry out 
such a successful, sophisticated, if you can call it that, terrorist attack while keeping it all so secret. And today we're learning that old school technology may have played a major role. CNN's uh, chief investigative correspondent, Pamela Brown, joins us now from the U.S. Pamela, what does the intelligence show? Well, Jake, sources are telling me and my colleague Zach Cohen that a small group of Hamas operatives used hardwired phones in the tunnels beneath Gaza to communicate over a period of two years. That's according to intelligence shared with U.S. officials. Now, those old-fashioned landlines allowed Hamas leaders to communicate underground with one another in secret. They avoided using computers or cell phones in order to keep from being tracked by Israeli or U.S. intelligence, according to these sources. And frankly, it worked, Jake. Instead, they held meetings in person among a small group and they stayed off all digital communications. So this partially explains why Israel and the U.S. were caught so off guard by the attack and how 1,000 Hamas fighters were able to pour across the border without being stopped, shown here in this propaganda video released by Hamas. Now, all of this communication happened in the miles of underground a tunnel system beneath Gaza that the IDF nicknamed the Gaza Metro. You heard the uh, the hostage there in the story you just played, Jake, talking about the spider web of tunnels. That's where apparently the, the these uh, phone lines were hardwired underground. Another way Hamas was able to keep this under the radar is that they kept the planning of the October 7th attack a secret, even from other members. Only a very small group knew about this mission until just before it was carried out. Hamas ground unit commanders and fighters were in training for many months, and they were kept in a state of general preparedness, I'm told, but only found out about the specific plans just a few days before the terrorist attack. And one of the sources said some of their training about above ground was observed by Israeli officials, but did not ring major alarm bells. The thinking was, I'm told, was, oh, Hamas always trains people like this. It didn't look different. But of course, we know now, Jake, it was. And Pamela, Israel actually found these hardwired phones in Hamas strongholds in the, in the past, though, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Israeli military found a similar kind of communication system when they raided a city in the northern West Bank over the summer, according to an Israeli official. They called this a joint operational command center, and it had hardwired communication lines and closed-circuit surveillance cameras to give advance warning of Israeli troop movements. So clearly this is something that has been in their playbook. Hamas uh, has had an their playbook, and they used it to execute this operation, as you pointed out, successfully, Jake. All right, Pamela Brown, thank you so much. I want to bring in Mark Regev with me here in Tel Aviv. He is the senior advisor to Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, also a former Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. If Shin Bet, the Israeli security service, if it knows so much about Hamas, uh, why wouldn't they know about these tactics? How could Shin Bet and the IDF not have seen October 7th coming in any way. So it's clear there was an intelligence failure, Jake. It's clear we were taken by surprise and we've paid a a terrible price for that. Uh, What is it, 1,400 people killed and more taken uh, uh, hostage. I think we, when this is over, now we're focused on winning this and we will win this, but when this is over, there'll have to be an investigation, thorough investigation, lessons learned. Why was there an intelligence failure? Why was it so easy for them to cross over the fence, which was supposed to protect us at, uh, with all the high tech and so forth? And why did it take the IDF so long to, to force them uh, uh, back to the other side and kill the, the, the people who'd come over to our side? 
there are all sorts of issues that need to be investigated. In the past, when we've had security mishaps like this, and this is more than a mishap, this is a major problem. Yes? Uh, we've had investigations, we've had committees of inquiry, we've had parliamentary inquiries. I'm sure when this is over, when we've won this, we'll have those sort of investigations. Ultimately, we're going to continue to live here. We live in a tough neighborhood, and we have to make sure we're at the top of our game, and it's clear we weren't. But you heard uh, the freed hostage, uh, Yochi Lifshitz, 85 years old, this morning, saying this wasn't just an intel- intelligence failure. There had been warnings in the weeks before Hamas doing things, the, the fence not strong, people calling uh, the security forces, warning them. And these complaints, these warnings by the kibbutzim around there ignored. So it's clear she's speaking for many Israelis. I mean, we, we pride ourselves on having very good intelligence services. Uh, the Mossad has an international reputation. Uh, the Shin Bet is the same. And yet here, it's obviously, we weren't up to par. And I think Israelis expect more. And there will be investigations and there will be lessons learned. Why do you think Hamas has been releasing hostages? That's four hostages released. Obviously, two of them are American. I'm not sure about the nationalities of these recent two. Are they, are they Israeli? Yes. They're both just purely Israeli. That's what I understand. Okay. Why are they releasing hostages? Because they're under immense pressure. And their allies are under immense pressure. Um, oh, look, Hamas wants a ceasefire. They hit us, they hit us hard, and now they want a ceasefire to protect them so we don't destroy their military machine. But they're not going to get one. We're going to continue keeping up the pressure. We're going to continue to target them. And with the international diplomatic pressure on their allies, we think we can get more people out. Do you think there are going to be more hostages released in the next week, two weeks? I can't, I, I can't speak for Hamas, obviously, but we'll keep the pressure up in the past. Over the last week, pressure has got people out. Keep the pressure up, increase that pressure, make Hamas feel the heat, make their allies feel the heat. You'll get more people out. So last night you told uh, CNN's Caitlin Collins that Israel is not going to authorize fuel to enter Gaza because it will just fall into Hamas's hands, even if it's meant for the hospitals, Correct. meant for humanitarian reasons. Hamas will take it. They control Gaza. Correct. Um, only f- uh, th- then this morning, the IDF chief of staff uh, said it will. Uh, it will enter fuel, will enter Gaza, but only for civilians. Then just minutes ago, an IDF spokesperson said no fuel full stop, because it will end up in the hands of Hamas. That's three different positions in less than 12 hours, I think. Uh, why? What's going on? And what is, is there, are you going to end on one of these positions at some point? So the government decision uh, that has been taken by our security cabinet is that we're in favor of humanitarian aid, which is water, food, and medicine. Right. The trouble with fuel, and I know that they say they need it for the generators in the hospitals, and that's a genuine need, is that the same fuel is taken, stolen by Hamas, and as you've said correctly, they control Gaza, they're the only people there with guns, they can take what they want. They take that off for their military machine, and they use that for... Uh, for rockets. For rockets and for their underground network of tunnels. And right, for the oxygen in the tunnels. Correct. Right. And, and we obviously want to deny them that. But I want you to know, we, we, we put out a statement earlier today, the IDF, there is actually a huge amount of fuel inside Gaza today, which Hamas has. Now, if you could tell me, give me assurances, guarantees that fuel going into Gaza would only go for civilian purposes, that's fine. But I don't think anyone can give me that guarantee. And we saw last week, CNN reported, I remember, uh, there were six truckloads, six tankers went in with fuel. And we know for a fact that Hamas hijacked and stole uh, part of that fuel. 
And so we're dealing with a formidable enemy. There is, should be no shortage whatsoever for the hospitals in Gaza, but Hamas is stealing that fuel from the people of Gaza. Can you clear something up for me? Because I really can't get a straight answer on this. There are about five or 600 Americans stuck in Gaza. They've, a lot of them are at the Rafah crossing. Correct. Um, these are Americans. They have American passports. Some of them are Palestinian-American, but, but, you know, they have homes in Massachusetts. They have homes in New Jersey. They've been calling the U.S. State Department. Why can't they get out? So I can give you a clear answer. Hamas won't let them out. In many ways, I think Hamas is also keep, keeping them hostage. I remember Secretary Blinken raised that issue, what was it, over a week ago before the president was here, before your Secretary of Defense. It was one of the issues that came up with us. And we said, from our point of view, we'll do everything we can to facilitate their immediate release. But only out of Rafa crossing, because all of your crossings are closed. And they've been destroyed. They're right. not functioning. That's a war zone. Right, right. okay. I'm We've had very serious firefights there. I understand. I'm just saying. But we're, we're happy and eager to facilitate their, their exit. Uh, that's our promise to the Americans. We're serious about that. But Hamas has decided to play games with these Americans. But it's not al-Sisi. It's not Egypt. It's Hamas. Yes, definitely. All right. Uh, former Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. As the U.S. ramps up its military presence in the Middle East, is the Biden administration anticipating a wider conflict involving American troops? We're going to go to the Pentagon for that question next. And we're back live from Israel as the U.S. increases its military presence in the Middle East. Today, the Pentagon announced the New Jersey Air National Guard's 119th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron has arrived in the region and other air defense units are on the way. Since the October 7th attacks, the U.S. military has deployed additional missile defense systems, a U.S. Marine Rapid Response Force, and two carrier groups. But... New intelligence suggests these American forces now face a major threat of an attack from Iranian-backed militia groups looking to capitalize on anti-American sentiment in the region. And Brigadier General Patrick Ryder joins us now. He is the spokesman for the Pentagon. Thank you so much for joining us, General. Um, Iranian-backed militia groups launched attacks against U.S. troops at least 10 times in Iraq and three times in Syria. CNN is reporting that they're, they're looking to step up these attacks even more. What more do you know about this and how concerned is the Pentagon? Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Jake. So clearly, uh, we are continuing to monitor this situation. As you know, over the weekend, Secretary Austin directed some additional assets into the region to include the USS Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group, which will go into the U.S. Central Command Area of Responsibility. Plus, we're deploying a THAAD battery and Patriot battalions into the Middle East, again, focused on force protection. Uh, One thing should be absolutely clear. uh, We will always maintain the inherent right of self-defense, and we will take all necessary measures to protect our forces and our interests in the region. You've said Iran is not explicitly directing these attacks, the U.S. believes, but they are encouraging them. How will the U.S. respond to Iran if any American service members lose their lives in these attacks? Yeah, well, look, I'm not going to telegraph or talk about any potential response or if we will take a response. If we do so, it would be at a time and place of our choosing. But again, uh, it's critical for actors in the region to include these Iranian-backed militia groups to understand that we will take necessary measures to protect our forces. Look, those forces in Iraq and Syria 
are there for one mission and one mission only, and that's to focus on the enduring defeat of ISIS. And so they'll continue to stay focused on that mission, and we'll continue to stay focused on ensuring that we have the capabilities in theater to protect our people as they do this important mission. One U.S. official says Iran likely does not want to engage in direct fighting with Israel or the U.S. So why are they doing this? Well, I'll I'll let Iran speak for itself. You know, right now, the United States is very focused on supporting Israel and its right to defend itself from terrorism. And so you see frequent communication between the Department of Defense, Secretary Austin, with his Israeli counterpart to ensure that we understand what Israel's defense needs are. We're also very focused on deterring a broader regional conflict. No one wants to see a wider war in this region. And that's why we've been very clear that any actor, whether it's a state or a non-state actor, that's looking to take advantage of this situation and widen that conflict, our message is clear. It's don't. And so we're going to continue to stay focused on deterring a broader regional conflict. We're also going to continue to stay focused on ensuring that our troops in the region are protected. Marine Corps Lieutenant General James Glynn, the former commander of Marine Forces Special Operations Command, is in Israel to counsel the Israel Defense Forces ahead of this expected ground incursion into Gaza. What sort of advice will he be able to provide? Well, look, it's, it's important to understand, as you well know, that we have a long-standing defense relationship with Israel, and we're frequently sharing information with one another. General Glenn, as a subject matter expert on the topic of urban warfare, uh, is able to ask those difficult probing questions that uh, the IDF need to consider as they contemplate an operation. Uh, Again, things that we're going to be focused on are uh, what are the kinds of considerations for the three-dimensional warfare that you see in these dense urban environments, but also importantly, taking into account the importance of civilian safety. Uh, And so these are lessons that we've learned in fighting groups like ISIS And so, uh, again, as an important and valued partner, we want to ensure that we can share that information and and, uh, assist in that advice to our Israeli partners. Well, we are seeing a growing civilian death toll in Gaza, uh, more than 5,000 killed since October 7th, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. A ground invasion could amplify this. Could Lieutenant General Glenn perhaps counsel the IDF on how to minimize the loss of innocent life, as you just were suggesting? Well, look, across the board, as we engage with our Israeli counterparts, uh, as you know, and as, as we've uh, read out in multiple phone calls, uh, we have been encouraging our Israeli counterparts to abide by the laws of war and to take civilian safety into account. Look, they're a professional military led by professional leaders. Uh, they understand the importance of that. Uh, unfortunately, what you see here is a terrible, cruel terrorist group like Hamas Uh, hiding itself among civilians. No one wants to see innocent Palestinians be killed or innocent Israelis be killed. And so, again, we're going to continue to consult with our Israeli allies uh, and make sure that, again, we're advocating that uh, the law of war be followed and that civilian safety be taken into account. There are up to 600 Americans trapped in Gaza right now. A family in Michigan, the Al-Arashis, is now suing the State Department and the Pentagon for not doing enough to evacuate their loved ones without commenting on the Al-Arashi's lawsuit. What is the deal here? What is preventing those Americans from being able to exit the Rafah gate and get out of Gaza? 
Well, Jake, I, I know that the U.S. government, that our State Department, uh, the White House have been working very actively uh, with Israeli officials and Egyptian officials, for example, to look at uh, ways to get U.S. citizens out of there. Uh, again, I don't have any specific information to provide uh, for my perch here at the Pentagon on that, other than to say we, of course, uh, are always concerned about the safety and security of American citizens, no matter where they are in the world. And so that will continue to be an important focus going forward. But who is keeping them from getting out? Is Hamas keeping them? Because my understanding from talking to one of these Americans today is that people at the gate don't even know that they're supposed to be letting them out. Yeah, I really I can't answer that question, Jake, because I, I just don't know the answer other than, again, I know from a U.S. government standpoint, our State Department has certainly been actively engaged on that front. Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jake. Appreciate it. I want to get right to some major breaking news. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has spoken with the special counsel's team multiple times this year, including in front of a grand jury, according to ABC News. The ABC News report says that Meadows was granted immunity to testify and that Meadows said he warned Trump that his election fraud lies after the 2020 election were in fact baseless. I want to bring in CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, this seems rather significant. Jake, it is significant. We've known that and we've reported that uh, Meadows did go before the grand jury. We knew that he had spoken to the grand jury. As a matter of fact, this has been a big source of, of conjecture within uh, Donald Trump's circle, legal circle, certainly, was the question of, of what level of, of cooperation was Mark Meadows uh, having with the special counsel. Now we know from uh, ABC's reporting uh, that this was done under an immunity deal and that he had spoken to the special counsel, including before the grand jury, uh, multiple times. And the key here is that, according to uh, this story from, it, from ABC, uh, the the former chief of staff to the former president uh, told investigators that the former president was being dishonest when he claimed that, that he had won the election immediately after the number November uh, November election November 2020 election. Uh, the also he also uh, goes on to say that uh, he had repeatedly warned the former president that there was no evidence to sustain his claims that there was this widespread fraud that could have made a difference in those election results in 2020. That's a big, big uh, piece of information for someone so close to Donald Trump to provide to those investigators, to provide to Jack Smith. Now, what this means, Jake, is that this is somebody who is going to be certainly one of the top witnesses uh, for Jack Smith and the prosecution when this case goes to trial early next year. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a trial that could start in March of next year. And uh, obviously the fact that Mark Meadows was not only one of the closest aides to the former president, he was also deeply involved in trying to find any evidence there was of fraud. He kept pressuring the Justice Department. He went down to Georgia to try to pressure state officials there to find evidence of this fraud, all of course, uh, uh, all of which, of course, Jake, we know was not there. So the idea that, Jake, that, uh, that Mark Meadows is now in the camp of the, the prosecution, uh, the only thing we've heard from his lawyers in the last, uh, uh, certainly the last few months that we've reached out on this issue uh, is that Mark Meadows 
is going to tell the truth whenever he is uh, asked to do that. So that the idea that he is now firmly uh, helping the prosecution is going to be a big, big deal for this case going forward, Jake. Evan, stick around. I also want to bring in uh, CNN's Jamie Gangel. Uh, Jamie, an important part of this ABC News report is that uh, Meadows told investigators that Trump was being dishonest with the public when he started claiming fraud in the hours after the election. A source telling ABC News that Meadows told investigators, quote, obviously we didn't win. Uh, But this was obviously not the message we were hearing from anyone around Trump at the time. I mean, we in journalism, in actual journalism, knew that Donald Trump uh, was not being honest when he made that claim. Um, but the, the Trump White House was in full lie mode. Right. So, so let's a, a couple of things here. As, as Evan just said, this is incredibly significant because he was the chief of staff. Mark Meadows was in the room. He was on the phone call to Georgia. He is aware of everything that's going on. And let's not forget, on January 6th, he sat there in the White House, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, scrolling through his phone while Donald Trump would not come out for, you know, 187 minutes and and tell the uh, rioters to stop and go home. He is the inner circle of everything that was happening, and he has been given immunity. And when you get immunity, you can't take the fifth. You have to testify to what you know. I I think there's something else that's worth mentioning here. Mark Meadows, during that whole period of time that he now says he was telling Trump that uh, that there this was baseless, he was saying something else publicly all of this time. He he wrote in his book that the election was still stolen and rigged. So what's been going on behind closed doors with prosecutors is completely different from what the public posture was. One question I'll have is, in addition to his testifying honestly about what happened, uh, what does he get immunity from? What was his exposure in all of this, Jake? Yeah, no, and Evan, that's, that was, that's my question to you, because right. Mark Meadows is, is not just coming voluntarily uh, and saying to the special counsel, Jack Smith, hey, you know, I, I'd love to participate. Obviously, you need to give me immunity just, in, you know, in case. I mean, obviously, this is some sort of, you know, hardcore deal, like I would imagine where Jack Smith says something like, this is what we could prosecute you on unless we come to some court of sort of agreement, right? Right, exactly. Look, I mean, the, the, certainly uh, George Terwilliger, who is uh, one of the, the attorneys for Mark Meadows, is known here in Washington to drive a pretty good bargain. And so one of the things that certainly people around the former president, Jake, uh, have certainly been concerned about is the fact that Terwilliger and the Meadows legal team has pretty much cut off all uh, contact. You know, people reach out to them to try to see if they could coordinate some kind of information. 
and they don't get any calls back. That's something that we've heard from sources over the last few months. And so that's really driven a lot of the concern inside Trump world that Mark Meadows had found a way to save himself and to, uh, to, to protect himself and to make a deal. And so that appears to be what exactly had happened behind the scenes. And as you pointed out, Jake, what's, what's going on in Georgia, we know more people are going to be taking those deals, all of which, of course, raises questions for the former president. All right, uh, Evan Perez and Jamie Gangel, uh, appreciate it. We're going to have more ahead on the breaking news uh, reports that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has testified to the special counsel. Uh, stay with us. We're back with more of our breaking news. ABC News is reporting that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has spoken with the special counsel's team multiple times this year, including in front of a grand jury. The ABC News report says that Meadows was granted immunity to testify and that Meadows said he warned then-President Trump that his election fraud claims after the 2020 election were completely baseless. I want to bring back CNN's Jamie Gangel. Jamie, what do you think the Trump team reaction will be to this news? Yeah, they're not going to be. Happy. Meadows, of course, was one of the people closest to Trump. Right. Uh, look, there, there's nobody who knew more about what was going on than Mark Meadows. He was the chief of staff. He was arranging meetings. He was arranging calls. He was in the meetings. Uh, just to be clear, Jake, we should go back and, and remind our viewers that we actually did report back in June that Mark Meadows had gone in to testify to the grand jury. But this ABC reporting is taking it further because of two things. We now know that Mark Meadows spoke to prosecutors in addition to that time with the grand jury at least two other times. And the big news here is he's been granted immunity. So the question is, you know, what kind of deal was made? What was his exposure? And then we just have to go back and remember that he may now be saying that he told Trump this was baseless. But what did Mark Meadows do? Or more aptly, what didn't Mark Meadows do? He did not ever publicly come out and say that the election was in fact, uh, you know, fair and free. He, he stuck with Trump's lie on it. He sat there in January, on January 6th, uh, as Cassidy Hutchinson described, sitting on his couch, scrolling through his phone, never going in to, as far as we know, to tell Trump, you have to go out there and, and stop this. And in the book he published after he left office. He continued to say the election was stolen and rigged. We don't know yet exactly uh, what the details are of everything that he's told the prosecutors, but this is the closest you could get to Donald Trump, what he knew, uh, when he knew it, and the fact that he was perpetuating a lie that first led to the violence on January 6th. And as Liz Cheney, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, has said, she feels it remains a clear and present danger for more violence. Mark Meadows has stood by publicly silently. All right, Jamie Gangel, thank you so much. We're going to keep following this breaking news. 
uh, stay with us. Uh, coming up next, more from Tel Aviv. Many families in Israel, of course, are dealing with grief on two fronts. Some of their loved ones were killed. Other loved ones were kidnapped. Uh, I'm going to talk with one man facing this horror. That's next. And welcome back to The Lead. I'm live from Tel Aviv, Israel. It's been 17 days since the Hamas terrorist attacks on October 7th. Many families, of course, are still waiting on word if their loved ones are, are dead or alive. Omri Almog initially learned that his sister and her husband and their four children were missing. And then he learned two of them had been killed in their home at Kfar Aza, a kibbutz. His brother-in-law and the oldest child were killed. His sister and the three youngest children remain missing and feared kidnapped by Hamas. Omri Almog is, is here with me now, and, and, and thank you for being here. Uh, words, I don't have the words to, I, I have no idea what it must feel like to have your little sister <clears throat> and her three kids um, kidnapped. I, I, I can't imagine what, what it's like. Tell us how you learned about it and, and what you think happened. I'm uh, living in the upper north in Israel, in Sdeli Ezer. So Saturday morning, the 7, we just uh, exchange a, a WhatsApp with Yam. She's the only one in the safe room. Yam, with, is, the, uh, Yam, the Yam is the oldest uh, uh, kid. And she's the only uh, one that communicates from the safe room. And she talks. right there? Yeah, no, this is the one that's missing. It's Actually, this is Agam, okay. yes. She's Agam, she's uh, 18 years old. Uh, Yam is murdered with her father in the house. Uh, she stopped communicating on WhatsApp around 12 uh, p.m. Uh, Saturday, and then they missing. My parents uh, were in a, a trip in a, a Bulgaria. And I have to control this situation and start to uh, uh, search for some information. Uh, Sunday night uh, from the kibbutz, we got some message that there are two uh, uh, confirmed uh, dead, uh, which they know them in the kibbutz. And we got the uh, final confirmation by DNA only on a Wednesday. A DNA? They uh, weren't recognizable? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I went to uh, Kfaraza last this Friday. Is, yeah. So I, uh, I just go over the kibbutz from house to house. There's uh, some house uh, burned completely. Uh, Nadav, my brother-in-law, parents, also was in, uh, in a Bulgaria trip with my parents. And their house is uh, uh, completely burned. You have to understand also, as I understand, that we're dealing here with uh, people that they are very cruel and they do everything to ruin uh, Israel and to ruin us and to hurt us as much as they can. Right. Uh, my uh, sister and Nadav, they lived there for uh, over 20 years. They never left the home in Faraza, No matter what the situation, Yam and the kids grew up into this situation, into these uh, uh, sirens, into this uh, uh, all the time we fight. Uh, and, and this is how they grew up. And yeah. that's why they stay there at the house. Have Israeli officials talked to you? Have they shared any information about what they think might have happened to your sister and the kids? Yes. Today, f first of all, the army is always with us and they give us some information. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, you have to understand there is no home now for my parents and for Nadav parents. And the families stay here in Tel Aviv in hotels. 
and I'm with them. Uh, all my family, we're just uh, sitting together. Last night we bear uh, uh, Nadav and Yam in Shfaim, which is a kibbutz in the center of Israel, and we're going to move them to Kfaraza when we can to, to uh, lay them in Kfaraza for, forever. So uh, uh, last uh, night was my uh, sister's birthday. She's 49, and she wasn't there at the funeral of her husband and, and Yam, her, her daughter. And this is uh, amazing. And the two grandfather uh, uh, saying Kaddish, and you don't know where is my sister and the other three kids. Now, uh, the information that we got, we uh, didn't know they were, they were missing that's for your, over that's a week. Your, that's your sister? This, this is my sister, Ken, yes. Yeah. And uh, we grew up uh, in the kibbutz next to Kfaraza, and she uh, uh, met with Nadav in, uh, when they were 14. And from there on, they together. Tell me what she's like. What is she like? Uh, she's, uh, she's very, very strong uh, mentally. She wouldn't let the kids uh, uh, go without, without her. We don't know what happened in the house. I was in, in, in her house in Kfaraza, and there's blood everywhere. There's uh, uh, shots everywhere. It looks like a war zone. It's a kibbutz. You have to understand that looks like a war zone. Yeah, you it's, said it was like it's Pearl, amazing. Pearl Harbor and 9-11 all, all at once. It's all in once, as you said. I think it's more than that. I mean, 1,400 people is, is murdered. For Israel, that's like, in America, it'd be in like 45,000 people. You yeah. got it. So it's amazing. The is that it? Is that the house? This is, uh, it's not their houses, but uh, this is how it looks like in the kibbutz around the, the Gaza yeah. Strip. I mean, uh, Kfaraza, it's, uh, yes, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to go in Kfaraza. You see, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the war zone, you see some uh, things that you see at war yeah. all over. Uh, this is just a community where people live. Yes, this is a community. How old are the three kids that are missing? The kids is Agam. Is she, she's 18 years old. And uh, the other two boys, uh, Gal is 11 and Tal is uh, 9 Jesus. Uh, years old. It's, uh, uh, we are very strong from outside. We, we, I believe they're alive. I believe they're together. But somebody, and it's not just my private problem. It's the world problem because we're dealing here. If we don't bring back these 220 people back from uh, the Gaza to Israel, three kilometers uh, to east, there's, it's going to be a problem in Israel. Israel will have a, is this uh, belief between the state of Israel and the citizen. I mean, the gap now that we have is the first thing we have to do before we do anything else is to bring these people back. Yeah. Well, they're innocent civilians. They're yes, innocent civilians. yes. Not, they're not soldiers. It's mainly oh, kids. They're kids. Faraza lost 59 people uh, confirmed dead at Faraza. It's, it's crazy. No. It's crazy. And when you talk to my parents, I don't live in Faraza. I know the kibbutz. I was there. Last time I see my sister was uh, uh, two months ago, uh, seven weeks ago. But... When you talk to my parents, you talk to Nadav parents, they, they said, we're going back to Kfaraza. We're going to live there. There's no other way. Yeah. And when, when, you, when you see them talking, you, the heart goes out to them uh, the way they think. I mean, they're 76 years old, but they live there for Nadav parents. They live there for over 50 years. My parents live there over 20 years. Yeah. So... It's, it's a difficult situation, but we, we fight, and I need the world, somebody need to help them to make it back yeah. from Gaza Strip, 
back to Israel. They cannot do them this. They, they cannot do it themselves. You're going to get your sister back. We're yes, sister I'm sure. Back. I'm sure. I know. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. We're live in Israel. We visited an auditorium earlier today at Tel Aviv University, an auditorium that's now a memorial. From the stage, a sea of more than 1,000 photographs stare back at you, each on an empty chair, each telling a story of someone who was killed or someone who was missing, presumed kidnapped. Stories as such as 22-year-old Amit Mann, a paramedic who spent her final hours treating others wounded from an attack before Hamas stormed her clinic and murdered her. Or 62-year-old Adrian Siegel, a missing Israeli-American, kidnapped from her home. Or a nine-month-old baby kidnapped, nine months old, along with his four-year-old brother and mom from their kibbutz near the Gaza border. The exhibit is called United Against Terrorism. It's a visual reminder of just how much was lost how many remain missing, and how something like this should never, ever happen again. And yet, of course, it keeps happening. I'll be back with you tomorrow from Tel Aviv. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.